Father, we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name that you would transform every one of us. We pray that none of us would leave the same. Lord, as lepers entered your presence and they left transformed, as Isaiah was in the throne room of God and he was transformed, as Paul was in the third heaven, as Saul, when he was on the road to Damascus, saw you, the resurrected light of Christ, he was transformed. No, no one who enters your presence leaves without being transformed. We pray that we would have ears to hear and open hearts to be transformed by your word for your glory and the hope of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, open it to Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. Before we go to Daniel, you know, I think one of the most inspiring passages in Scripture is when the Philistines and, I'm sorry, the Israelites and the Amalekites were in battle. So the Amalekites um, were winning. And Moses, at that time, was the leader over the Israelites, and he was up on this cliff overlooking the battlefield. And when Moses would lift up his hands, he would lift up a staff that rep rep represented the power of God, then the, the tide of the battle would shift, and then the Israelites would begin winning. Well, I mean, Moses began leading these people when he was 80 years of age, and so uh, his, his shoulders are burning, and, and he's holding this staff up. And, I mean, it's like, it's like all-day cardio, you know, and his, 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 his shoulders are burning, and, 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 and uh, that staff feels like, you know, a couple hundred pounds, and, and he's, he's, he's lowering it. He can't hold it up. And when he drops the staff, what happens is that, the, once again, the... The tide of the battle shifts, and then the Amalekites begin winning. Well, they discern what's happening, and so Aaron and Hur get on each side of Moses, and they hold Moses' arms up, and then once again, the tide of the battle shifts. They, 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 they put a rock behind Moses, he sits, and they hold his arms up, Aaron on one side, Hur on the other, they hold his arms up, the, the tide shifts, the Israelites begin winning again, and as long as Aaron and Hur are on each side of Moses, holding him up, then Moses is able to uh, intercede for Israel, and they have the power of God until the battle was won. And that is a picture of the power of intercession. That's a picture of the power of prayer. As we lift up, as the body of Christ lifts up our, our cities, our churches, our pastor, our pastors, our, our nation, then there is spiritual momentum and there's light and life and hope and righteousness and people turning to Christ and people longing for Christ. But as our prayers begin to decrease, then the tide shifts and the darkness begins to overtake the culture. And we can look around today and we see that this is the age. Is it not of megachurches? Commercialized churches, megachurches? And yet, our culture has never been more anti-Christ. Our culture has never been more immoral. As Billy Graham's wife said in the 50s or 60s, that if God doesn't judge America soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And how much more moral and wicked are we today? Our morality and our, our immorality and our wickedness has far exceeded that of even Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet we have the answer. We have the hope of the world. Then, then, then where's the disconnect? It's that the church today, I believe, is not lifting up the pastors, the churches, the leaders, the nation in prayer. Our prayers are getting weak and the tide has shifted. This is why our church has been on a fast. Uh, we've been fasting and praying now for I don't know how many days, uh, uh, five days, roughly six, and we've been fasting and we've been repenting and we've been praying, and I believe that even this morning we, we saw the result of that. The tide shifted. As I said, I stumbled through a sermon, and I am A-OK -okay to stumble through a sermon if, if, if it means that the Holy Spirit can show up in greater power and people's hearts were just touched and people came home and they turned to Christ. This is the result of not slick programming this is the result of not, not uh, commercialized ministry. 
It's the result of not uh, slick marketing and slick promotions. It's the result of not, you know, trying to wear trendy uh, shirts as pastors do and, and trendy glasses and trying to be cool and, and all of this stuff. And, and it, what we need more than anything is the power of God, is it not? The reason that churches are bigger than ever and yet our culture seems to be more unimpacted by the gospel is because it's devoid of the power of God. The power of God doesn't flow through slick preaching, slick programming, slick marketing, slick promotions. The power of God flows through the prayer of his people. That is a promise. And where God's people have set their heart on seeking the face of God and praying, then the power of God flows through them and begins touching lives and transforming hearts. And the power of God continues to flow as long as the prayers persist. But where the prayers cease, the power seems to evaporate. And so I've been very grateful for your fasting. I've been very grateful for your prayers. And it's uh, resulting in, in the power of God at work in people's lives. And we've seen it tangibly. And even if we don't see it tangibly, we continue to pray in faith, believing, expecting, because we know those prayers are seeds. The kingdom of heaven functions not technologically. The kingdom of heaven function, functions agriculturally. This is a very important contrast. We don't function technologically. You push a button, it's instant. As much as we want it to be technological. The kingdom of heaven is agricultural. It's a concept that in, in our urban cities we've largely lost. And I think this is why our prayers have evaporated. And, but the kingdom of heaven functions agriculturally. You plant a seed. And even if you don't see immediate results, you don't, you, you don't unplant the seed and try to plant it somewhere else. You understand that it's seasonal, it's a process, and you plant a seed, and you work the land, and then the rain falls, and the rain is, 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 is beyond your control, but the rain falls, and it waters the seed, and it produces a harvest. This is the kingdom of heaven. It, Jesus said it's a mustard seed. It's agricultural. We, we, we share our faith. We, we, we share our testimony and we pray. And the power of God, the spirit of God is the rain and it waters those seeds and it produces a harvest of hope. It produces a harvest of loved ones, family members who are prodigals and they've gotten away from God. It's a harvest of them one day coming back to God. It produces a harvest of people around us beginning to long for Christ. It produces a harvest of people's hearts being soft and receptive to the gospel. You know, when I was in India, and we went up on this mountain, and we were going to share Christ with people who had never before heard the name of Jesus. In fact, the, the community came out, and this one little girl, when she saw me, because she'd never seen anybody with my complexion and hair color, she saw me, and she immediately began screaming like I was a monster. But the whole tribe came out, and, or the whole village came out, and we, we, we shared the gospel. And then they worshiped many, many gods. And we said, we worship the God that created everything. You worship the God that created, that, that you created. I mean, look, it's, you know, you, you made it. You carved it. You bought it. It can't think, see, hear. I mean, that's the God you worship, which is no God at all. It's lifeless. We worship the God who created everything. We worship the God of life. We worship, we worship this God, and he sent us from the other side of the world to tell you how much he loves you. And you want to know something? Their hearts were soft. I mean, it was like planting a seed in soil that was thick and deep and rich and receptive. And then you, you, you come back to Fort Worth, and I love the states. I'm not anti the states. I believe it's the greatest country in the history of the world. But you come back to the states, and you share the gospel, and it's like the hearts are like, like concrete. You know, towards the gospel, impenetrable concrete. Because their hearts have been calloused over by hearing the gospel so many times and having not responded. But it's the passionate, fervent prayers of the church that breaks up the fallow ground so that people are receptive to Christ and even long for Christ. 
So we're in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel was in a pagan country, and yet through his love for Jesus, through his persistence in prayer, fallow ground was broken up. And we're talking the most arrogant of people, the most godless of people, began uh, worshiping God and praising God with their lives. But I asked the question this morning, have you ever seen, like, how come... Why is it that some people start well and they fall by the wayside? Why, in, in terms of um, honoring God with their life, why is it that some people start with a fervor and a hunger and a passion for Christ and then ev- eventually they stop running the race? I mean, you, you see Olympian athletes, they're, they're focused. They run with an intent to win. And they've been training. And when they hit that track or when they step in the, the ring, You can tell they are prepared. But how many times have we seen also perhaps a heavyweight champion uh, who's defending his title and he steps into the ring and maybe he's been the heavyweight champion for some years and he steps into the ring and how often do we see, oh, he's not prepared. I mean, you can just look at him and tell he hasn't been in the ring very long or he hasn't been practicing very hard for this. And then here comes the contender. And he's ripped and he's cut and he's focused and he looks mad and he looks like he wants the championship. And you're like, well, you you know how this is going to go. How many times have we seen that? And it goes exactly as we anticipated. The, The defending champion loses his championship title. And I believe that many Christians step into the ring of life on a daily basis and spiritually we're not in shape. Spiritually we're not focused. And we wonder why we're depressed and we wonder why, why there's not spiritual momentum. We wonder why we don't have joy. We wonder why Christ doesn't shine through us. It's because we are not in shape spiritually. We read in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 6, Daniel, actually all through the, the, all through the book of Daniel, we're introduced to Daniel when he's a young man. And we follow Daniel all the way through his life. In fact, Daniel chapter 5 and 6, we're introduced to him when he was a young man, when, when Babylon first ransacked Jerusalem and took all their young men, all their young princes, all the young leaders, and, and, and made them eunuchs and made them captive in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. So we, we, we pick up with this young Jewish man when he's a young man. And we see that he loves God and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They love God. They're head and shoulders above everybody else, spiritually speaking. The only thing that we know about their physical disposition is that they, they shined. They shined above all of their companions. They shined. There was just something different about them, trustworthy about them, noble about them. They were different. Spiritually speaking, they were in shape. That's how we, 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 we pick up with these guys when they were young men. Exiles in this foreign country, and their, their homeland was destroyed. And here in Daniel chapter 5 and 6, Daniel's about 80 years old. And guess what? He hasn't missed a beat. He's only deeper. He's only stronger. He only loves God more. His countenance is only brighter. His wisdom is only stronger. His character is only more trustworthy. People look at him and there's still even more, just something different about him. He doesn't miss a beat. He ran the race well. Why? Why do we see somebody like Daniel running the race so well? And then we look at the first king of Israel, King Saul, who was no slouch himself. He was a strong leader. He was the kind of guy, physically speaking, not like Daniel, spiritually speaking. There's something special about him. But King Saul, the first king of Israel, physically speaking, there was something special about him, something different. You look at him, I mean, he just looks like a leader. He's got charisma. You just want to follow this guy. He's got natural ability. I mean, out of thin air, he he created an army. He was a leader. But he fell. He veered. He ran. He started well, but he didn't end well. Well, you look at uh, King David's son Solomon we pick up as a a young man he started well he veered he went way off He, he came back why is it that some people run well and why is it that some people get out of shape 
spiritually, and they stop running at all. Well, in Daniel chapter 5 and 6, we've got a lot of answers for that. Not a lot, we've got a few answers, but it tells us a lot. We're going to look at a king named Belshazzar, we're going to look at a king named Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to look at Daniel, we're going to contrast some things about some decisions that they made. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar, now uh, I mentioned that, that uh, Babylon, uh, ancient Iraq, ransacked Jerusalem, I mean leveled it, so that beautiful temple that King David was able to draw up the blueprints for and his son Solomon built, and it was so utterly gorgeous and honoring to God. I mean, everything drew attention to God's glory and, and God's character and God's plan. And it was an incredible temple. That thing was just raised to the ground. I mean, destroyed. And then, well, chapter 5, verse 1. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar dies. Here's Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. This is, this is Babylon, verse 2. Now when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to, watch this, guys. Watch this. Chapter 5, verse 2. He gave orders to, here it goes, bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the kings and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone. What do you think God thought about that? I mean, this, this stuff came out of the temple of God. This temple was so holy. It was, it, it was I mean... Priest, it, 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 it was a grander version of the tabernacle throughout the wilderness. And priests, they would tie a gar, a sh rope around their, their leg. And they would go in with such, uh, such consecration, such, such seriousness, such sobriety, such uh, worship. Um, they would intercede for the people that they would tie a, a rope around their leg. And they would have bells on their garments. And if the people outside stopped hearing the bells jingling, then they would just pull the priest out because he was dead. I mean, they approached this thing with such awe, with such reverence, with such respect. And then here's Belshazzar, this pagan king. He's having a, a, a drunken party, and he gives the order, oh yeah, all that gold when my dad ransacked Jerusalem, yeah, all that gold out of the temple, bring it. Let's, let's eat. Let's drink. Let's get drunk out of that. What's the lesson here? When we take anything that is God's, and use it for our own use, and use it in a manner that doesn't coincide, and it doesn't reflect God's character or God's compassion, then it displeases God. And so we have to look at our lives, don't we? I mean, aren't our lives bought with the price? We're bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And in denominations, you know, as I've been going around just vision casting with pastors and trying to recruit pastors on board for, for awakening, I've, I've just, I've had the honor just to go in and see what's happening in some churches and things seem really exciting and seeing the sweetness or, or the coldness or uh, whatever it might be, just the differences and, and, uh, and, and, and the ministries that they have going, and it's been awesome, and it's really expanded my view of how God's moving in and, and our city. 
and, and, I, and I go in, and you know, and there's been many, 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 many differences, like some churches draw a line. I mean, they're going to fight. The, the hill that they're going to fight and die on is that you better not have instruments on the stage. I mean, that's the hill they're going to fight and die on. And my roots are Baptist. The, the hill that we'll fight and die on is that, you know, the, we're cessationists. Those, those gifts that get a little crazy sometimes, those are gone. I mean, most Baptists would fight and die on that hill. The Pentecostals will fight on die on the hill. Those gifts that the Baptists say are gone, everybody ought to have them. And then ought to be a really big deal when everybody assembles. And it's just the, the, the lines, the divisions that are man-made. And, and some, some I, I read the Bible and say, you know, I can get where you get that, and I can get where you get that, and I get where you get that, and I get where you get that. But something that we all ought to agree upon is this. We are bought with the price, and that is the blood of Jesus. And because of that, we are forgiven and we are the righteousness of God, and we are heaven-bound, and God loves the lost so much that he sent his son for them. And if they'll repent and turn to Christ and place their faith in him, then they too are bought with the price. We all ought to agree on that. And it's going to be a really awesome thing this Friday night. Churches are coming together from all over. And, and yeah, people, I mean, we've got some different opinions on this and that, but we agree on that. They were bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. He paid for our sins. He conquered death. He's coming again. And before he returns, let's, let's pull together as many people as we can to go to heaven with us. Because don't you know that Jesus wasn't Baptist? He wasn't. Jesus is Jesus. Jesus wasn't Lutheran. Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is Jesus long before Martin Luther was ever born. Jesus isn't Wesleyan, he's, 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 Jesus is Jesus, and we worship Christ, and we share Christ. The thing isn't a religion, it's a relationship with the God who loves us and died for us and longs to spend eternity with us, but not just that, he wants to do every moment of every day with us so that our joy is complete and he shines through us. All that to say, we are bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Therefore, we are not our own. We belong to God. And Belshazzar took those things that didn't belong to him but belonged to God and used them for his own use and that did not please God. And we are bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. We are not our own. We belong to God. Therefore, we can't just entertain whatever thoughts we want to think. We can't just go wherever we want to go, say whatever we want to say, do whatever we want to do. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. Therefore, whatever we do, we do as if Christ, because he is. He's living through us. Like this building, this building is beautiful, isn't it? We, we bought it from the Presbyterians. We didn't ever build a building like this, as beautiful as it is. We're grateful for it. We love it. But this building isn't the temple. This building isn't the church. Do you know, in all this time that we've been here, I've never once, never once, and some people do, and I don't, I'm not legalistic about it, but this is just, this is me. But this is sound theology. But I've never once, we bought this building in 2010, and I've never once called this building the church. I've never once said, I'm going to the church, I'll meet you at the church, okay, see you at the church, that kind of thing. Now I'll say, what time does church start? Because we all assemble together, because what's the church? You're the church. I'm the church. We're the church. That means you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that is amazing. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep, when the Trinity was creating all things, the same Spirit, the same Spirit that anointed David, the same Spirit that anointed his son Solomon, the, the same Spirit that, that anointed Elijah and Elisha, the same Spirit that anointed those early disciples when they spread the gospel like wildfire and changed the world, that same Spirit, that same Spirit is in us. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away because then I wouldn't send the helper, which is the spirit who lives within us. And now this is, the, this is the temple. This is the temple. And God was not pleased when Belshazzar took that which belonged to God and used it for profane things, for his own 
pleasures, for his own glory. And so we, are, we belong to Jesus because we've been bought with the price of the blood of Christ. We belong to Jesus. And since the Holy Spirit now lives within us, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let us not use these temples for anything that dishonors or displeases Christ or that doesn't reflect his character or his compassion. talking with Gentry uh, before service we were praying and we were talking about you know God loves us right where we are I mean sin and all God loves us right where we are obviously I mean he was a friend of sinners and tax collectors and he didn't love us when we were on our A game Romans 5 8 God demonstrates his love toward us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us. He loved us not at our best. He loved us at our worst. He loves us right where we are. You go outside, you find the most out of their mind, homeless person. God loves them so much. And if they were the only ones who would turn to him for salvation, he would have died just for them. God loves us right where we're at. Even when we take this soul that he saved and these temples and use them for profane usages and do things that displease and dishonor him and don't reflect his character and compassion, he loves us. But he also loves us too much to let us stay there. He loves us right where we are, but too much to let us stay there. Therefore, he will go to work in our lives to bring us to a place of surrender and consecration to him. He will go to work in our lives and he will use either revelation or tribulation, whichever it takes. But it's all an extension of his love. Revelation is like this morning, you know, just the spirit moved and people just, man, they just wanted to be right with God. Tribulation, you know what that is. The heat gets turned up until we say, I surrender, Lord, I surrender. And so, in the night of this drunken feast, I won't read it, but go back and read it tonight. Something just mysterious happened. It's incidentally where we get the phrase, the handwriting on the wall. Have you heard that? It's pretty clear what's about to happen. I can see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, There was a mysterious hand. It was the hand of God. Belshazzar saw it. And the hand of God with his finger was inscribing a mysterious writing. Min tekel peres. Nobody knew what that meant. I mean, it absolutely terrified Belshazzar so much that the Bible describes what he felt like. You know the feeling like when you see the red light swirling behind you, that sinking feeling times times a thousand? His, I mean, his heart just sank. His knees grew weak. His face was pale. He was terrified. He brought in all his wise people, his, his magicians, his astrologers, all that stuff. Nobody knew what it meant. And then somebody remembered Daniel. Again, Daniel's 80 now. We were first introduced to Daniel when he was just a young man. They said, there was a man that your dad leaned on for wisdom. He's different. He's got wisdom, head and shoulders above everybody else. He's different. He's the real deal. Belshazzar brought him in. And he saw him. As soon as he saw Daniel, he knew there was something different. It wasn't because of his charisma or his clothes or anything of that nature. It was God in him. And incidentally, this is what a lost and dying world is longing for. I believe we ought to strive to do our best. and We ought to strive for excellence. We're serving the King of Kings, so I believe that. But the world, the lost world, the dying world, they're not longing for slick programming or slick marketing or trendy uh, presentations. They're not. 
They're longing for the real deal. They're longing to see God in somebody. They're longing to see God in you. And then when Daniel walked in, Belshazzar said, I've heard about you. In verse 14, and he talks about what he's heard. And then again in 15, I've heard about you. You're different. You're the real deal. And uh, so Belshazzar tells Daniel, look, if you can interpret what's happening, what's going on here, then, I mean, I'll give you, I mean, this clothes that mean authority, royalty, and the whole empire, and it was an empire, and the whole empire, you'll be number three. Listen to Daniel talk about the real deal. Verse 17, Daniel said before the king, notice that before I go there, notice that Daniel didn't think, oh, great, my ship has finally come in. This is the retirement I've been looking for. No, 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 no. This is something I pray. I pray, oh, God, I pray I never, ever, 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 ever retire. We never retire from the work of God. We never retire from seeking the face of God and making him known to as many people as possible. We never retire from praying for the people that God has emburdened our hearts to pray for. We never retire. And Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts. Give your rewards to somebody else. But I'll tell you what the inscription said. Verse 18. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. God granted it to him. And because of the grandeur which God bestowed on your dad, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished to kill, he killed. Whomever he wished to spare, he spared. Whomever he wished to be elevated, he elevated. Whomever he wished to humble, he humbled. And the question when we began attacking Daniel chapter 5, we began unpacking Daniel chapter 5 was this. Why is it that some people run the race that was set before them? Why is it that some people run like an Olympian, like Daniel? They're focused, they're passionate, they, they don't waver. And why is it that some people fall by the wayside? Like a, like a heavyweight champion who's trying to defend his title, but it's obvious he's going to lose it because he's not in shape and his opponent means business. Why? Daniel answers that in verse 20. Because Nebuchadnezzar, he led a revival. Inspired by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar led a revival in a foreign pagan country. He had a spurt where he ran well. But it didn't last long. Verse 20. Daniel continues to Belshazzar about his dad. But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed of his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. The seed of pride came against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar began looking around at the gifts that God had given to him, and he began thinking that maybe he had just a little, just a little to do with it. And when we look around at the blessings that we have, or the success that we have, or the goodness that we have, or even our salvation, and we begin thinking that we have just a little, just a little to do with it, that is the seed of pride. And we had better cast it down, and Nebuchadnezzar did not. And not only did Nebuchadnezzar not cast it down, but his son took that pride, and he ran with it. And Daniel continues to Belshazzar in verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And then he brings his attention about how he desecrated these artifacts that were to bring glory to God and honor to God and d demonstrate the plan of God. And he says, look, look at what you've done, Belshazzar. You brought the vessels of God's house before you. 
And you and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hands are your life, breath, and your ways you have not glorified. And then he says what the writing means. Mean means that God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel means that you've been weighed on the scales and found lacking. Perez means your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And that night, Belshazzar was slain, and even scripturally, but also corroborated with history, the Medes and Persians overthrew the Babylonians. Pridefulness will always result in spiritual slothfulness. You know, just spiritual laziness, spiritual slothfulness, pridefulness will always result in spiritual slothfulness because we think, God, I've got it. I don't need to pray. God, I've got it. I don't need to walk circumspectively. God, I got it. I don't need to give an account to you. God, I've got it. And pridefulness will always result in prayerlessness and pride, pridefulness will always then result in slothfulness. And then we're out of shape, spiritually. And we wonder why we lose the spiritual battles. We fall into temptation. We, we, we don't seize opportunities to share our faith. Or even create opportunities to share our faith. We wonder why we don't pray, uh, persevering, expecting mountains to move and see mountains move. If we give in to pridefulness, then we think we've got it. And soon prayerlessness vanishes. And soon we'll be walking in spiritual slothfulness or laziness because we think our life's our own and we don't have to give an account to God. And Daniel was very different. Let's move into verse 6. Nebuchadnezzar came and went. Belshazzar came and went. Now there's a new king, the king of the Medes and the Persians, and we'll close up shortly. His name was Darius. Well, Darius saw, as the other kings did, something different about Daniel. Something discerning, something real, something truthful. It was the real deal. And so quickly, in Darius's administration, Daniel quickly moved up the ranks. But... It shouldn't be a surprise that politics quickly came into play and there were, there, things were, were political and things were competitive and things were partisan. Daniel didn't take place in that nonsense. Uh, but some people began jealous of Daniel. They wanted him removed. They didn't like what he represented. They wanted his place. And so they said, no problem. We'll just investigate Daniel and we will investigate him until we find something to bring against him and we are going to slander him to no end until we get him out. So they began investigating. Watch this. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Watch this. Daniel is so different. But they could find no ground of accusation against Daniel, nor evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in Daniel. Wow. I mean, they were going after him with the scrutiny of one of our presidential candidates. They were going after him with complete scrutiny, spies and everything, and they couldn't find one ounce of evidence to accuse him of hypocrisy, of corruption, of negligence. Not an ounce of it. And so they said, we are still, we're, good, we're shrewd politicians. We're still going to get him out of the way. So you want to know what they did? They said, we'll just make it illegal to love God like he loves his God. Watch this in verse 5. Then uh, these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And that's exactly what they did. 
So they wrote up this order and they went to Darius and they manipulated Darius and Darius was probably a bit narcissistic and they said, and they knew that and so they were just manipulating things and they went to Darius and they said, Darius, we have an idea. This will bring unity, this will bring cohesiveness, this will be like a national holiday, it'll be good for the country, it'll be good for momentum, it'll be good for your leadership, it'll be good for your influence. So here, here's, what, here, here's what we propose. Here's a new law, here's a new decree that... For 30 days, just 30 days, but for 30 days, nobody can worship anybody but you. And if they do, we'll have them killed. And Darius said, yeah, sure, sounds good. So he signed the decree. Verse 10, watch this. When Daniel knew this, that the document was signed, he entered his home. He went to his roof. He, he, he had a habit of praying with his windows open. And since he was in Babylon, he, he prayed toward Jerusalem. And, and three times a day, he would bow and pray. So you would think, maybe he, maybe he will compromise a little. And maybe he'll go in, and maybe he'll just close the windows and continue praying. He didn't do that. With the windows open, so everybody can see, knowing this was a trap, Daniel, when he knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued, he continued. Remember that word. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. Watch this. As he had been doing previously. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. that nothing would change in our prayer life. That we would be so in love with God, that we would be so dependent upon God that nothing would change in our prayer life. Things are getting really busy at work, things are crazy at work, and still that nothing would change in our prayer life. I've been praying for something for a long time and I haven't seen the answer yet, but that nothing would change in our prayer life. You know, I was really expecting life to unfold one way and it's unfolding another way, but that nothing would change in our prayer life. You know, some people, they've been saying some really ugly things about me, that nothing would change in our prayer life. That we would be that dependent upon the Lord. No matter what happens, nothing would change in our prayer life. You want to know why Daniel was so faithful in prayer? Well, he loved God, obviously. He loved God. But he also clearly understood that nothing can happen without God. Nothing can happen without God. And even if something could happen without God, if it were without God, he would want no part of it. So nothing changed in his prayer life. It reminds me of Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He was uh, a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And, you know, he analyzed a lot, and he wrote about it. And he said, you know what? These soldiers, they can intimidate us. They can yell at us. They can take our clothes. They can take our wedding ring. They can take our dignity. They can take our future. They can, they, they can take our lives. But they can't take how we choose to respond to them. Now, a lot can happen around us that's completely out of our control, but what we do have is God, and what we do have is prayer, that we would stay so close to the Lord and so dependent upon God. I would really... I would really be um, encouraged if your prayer life increased this week because your dependence upon the Lord increased and that no matter what happens nothing changes your prayer life and when we have opportunity as a church to come together and pray uh, like awakening as we had the last couple of Saturdays, I would really be encouraged if you are so aware of our utter dependence and need for God that that is a priority. 
and you assemble and you pray. I would be uh, very encouraged if, if you were more concerned about uh, not neglecting prayer than, 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 than how things unfold at work or whether you get that promotion or what people are thinking or saying or anything of that nature, but that you would just stay close to the Lord in prayer. So, you know, we, we, we had, um, you know, last week we, we talked about awakening and we're fasting and we're praying and it's not just going without, but it's going without in order to go deeper with God. But what good is it if we fast and pray but still entertain sin patterns in our life, right? So we're just, we're getting our lives cleaned up. And, and you know, this is, this is not legalistic stuff. I mean, this is, this is New Testament stuff that, that we're seeking the face of God. It's a relationship. And how, 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 do you, how do you think it would work if you were saying your wedding vows with your wife on your wedding day and you said, I will, I will, I will love you through sickness or in health and, 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 and better or worse, richer or poor, and, and I will be faithful unto you uh, until God by death shall separate us and I will be faithful unto you 360 days out of the year. But I need five. Do you think a spouse would go for those vows? No, no. And see, that's why, that's why this, is, this is more than religion. This is a relationship. Jesus wasn't about religion. He's about a relationship, and we can actually break the heart of God, and we can cause God joy. We can cause God jealousy because it's a relationship. And so somebody said, well, I, uh, I, um, I don't really know what I can, somebody told me, they said, I don't really know what I can repent of. I wanted to repent. I was really motivated to repent, but I couldn't think of anything. There's really nothing in my life. And I explained sins of commission and sins of omission. They're like, what is that? And I said, well, sins of commission are, are things that you commit that you shouldn't be doing. Like you're stealing, you're murdering, you're having adultery, whatever. Those are sins of commission. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't commit those things. They're like, well, I'm not doing any of that. I said, well, there's sins of omission too. Like, what's that? I said, well, sins of omission are things that you're not doing that reflect Christ's compassion and love to a broken world and to his body of Christ, the, the church. It's things that you ought to be doing that you're not doing. You're omitting these things. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, I guess I have some of that. I said, yeah, we, we all do. And there's all, there, there, we, we can all repent of something. This is... Uh, uh, Charles Finney wrote it about 100, uh, 150 years ago. It is so timely today because the human heart hasn't changed. So as I read this, uh, just, just ask yourself, are there some things that you can repent of? What about ingratitude? Are you grateful for your salvation? Are you grateful for your life? Or has the, has the American disease of itchitis crept in so that you want more and, and more is never enough and if your neighbors get more you want more and, and you just constantly itching and then scratching that itch to itch more or are you grateful for what you have what about love or loving God do you love God I mean just the name of Jesus cause your heart to melt with gratitude and appreciation for what he's done in your life what about neglect of the Bible have you neglected the Bible, or is, is, is thy word a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, and is this your security blanket? I, I was reading the Bible today at Barnes & Noble, and somebody actually followed me out to the parking lot, and they said, they said, excuse me, uh, I'm Ben. I said, hey, I'm Shane, and they're like, I just saw you reading the Bible. I don't see people reading the Bible. And I'm sure they do, but you know, it's on smartphones and stuff these days. But like, I, I just don't see people reading the Bible these days. And I'm a little old school with that. But it's my security blanket. In fact, this, this Bible was given to me. I have a habit of going through Bibles, but this Bible was given to me when I was 11 years old, my 11th Christmas. And I said, um, yeah, he said, tell me what you were reading. So I was reading about Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, but, but mainly, you know, the takeaway is that Daniel prayed. And he's like, that is so refreshing. So I invited him to awakening. But have you neglected the word or is it, you know, like, have you ever left your cell phone in the car and you go in and you're like, oh, yeah, my cell phone. I, you just don't feel right without your phone? I did that with my watch today. I was like, oh, I left my watch. I just didn't feel right without it. Do you feel that way about the word? 
Have you been neglecting the word? What about unbelief? Do you pray and do you believe that mountains are going to move? What about neglect of prayer? What about love for people in the body of Christ? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Screwtape Letters talking about how we as Christians are connoisseurs of, of churches and, and, we, and we just size one another up. We look and label. We judge so badly. Are we horrible about it? I do it too when I go places. It's, it's our nature. We all do it. But we need to rein that in and cast it down. And we just need to, to, to have eyes to love one another in the body of Christ. What about, a, what about a longing for lost people? What about a brokenness for lost people? Are we more burdened about, about making ends meet at the end of the month and, and work situations and all of that? Or are we more burdened about people who don't have a relationship with Christ? What about neglect of watching over your brethren in the body of Christ? And just in love, going up and just saying, hey, man, I've noticed you're doing this and, and it's hurting your life and I've got to tell you about it and I've got to pray with you about that. What about neglect of self-denial? Has catering our flesh become so common that, that living in sin is just normal? What about worldly-mindedness? I mean, we're bombarded with... You know, Fox News, CNN, sitcoms, dramas, uh, talk shows, and, and just a mean-spiritedness and a sarcastic tone just oozes from that. And that tends to be all that, that even Christians fill their heart and mind with. What about pride, the sin that God hates worse than any of them? And how do you know how prideful you are? Simple, how prayerful are you? You think, well, I'm a humble person. Then are you an intensely prayerful person? Because if you're not, then that means you think that you've got it without God and you're walking independently of him, not in utter humility and dependence. What about envy? Do you envy blessings that others have? Do you envy ministries that others have? Pastors, we're bad about that. We have to cast that down. Envying, just God, why are you blessing them like that? It's, something, it's a sin and we have to cast it down. What about bitterness? Is there somebody that's hurt you, that's wounded you, and you're in your heart, you're punishing them? And you've got to forgive them, and you've got to let them off the hook. What about slander? Do words just spew out of your mouth that are negative, that tear down others? What about lying? Do you color coat the truth? Are you so diplomatic that, that nobody knows what you're really trying to say? What about cheating? God, you may wonder why, why your finances are just constantly frustrated. And God says, if you're not faithful with the tie, the 10%, then I'm going to take that 100% that you think you're maximizing, and I'm going to frustrate it. It's going to be cursed. But you be faithful with the 10%, and I will bless that 90% more than you could do 100%. A bad temper. What's the root of that? Is it sin? Is it fear? Is it bitterness? Is there a bad temper that you need to cast down and pray that the Lord gives you peace in? What about hindering others from being useful? Are you holding somebody back from, from uh, fulfilling their God-given purpose in life? I mean, it could go on and on. It's just helping us to evaluate that, Lord, does my heart reflect your heart? Is my heart consistent with Christ's heart? I say these things not to make anybody feel guilty, but, but just to say, Jesus loves you. I mean, you go out there tonight and, and you become an alcohol, you give in to alcoholism and, and you start stealing and you start killing people. You know what? Jesus still loves you. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. Jesus loves you so much right where you are, but too much to let you stay there. So he will either bring revelation to allow you the opportunity to repent so that you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or tribulation so that the heat gets turned up enough you say, I surrender, Lord, I surrender. Would you stand with me, please?
We're fasting as a church family. We're repenting as a church family. We're praying. And, and then we're, we're gathering up as many people who need Jesus um, to this event called Awakening. And we're praying that it's more than an event. We're praying that it's a movement where, like, the churches in Fort Worth and pastors in Fort Worth. I have a lot of pastor friends, and, and I don't think I know a pastor. I don't think I know a pastor who's not discouraged. And we ought, to, we ought to all walk in the fruit of the Spirit. But I'm just saying they need prayers, and they need to be held up. And so we're praying that, that as we go into awakening, I mean like a hot summer day when the rain falls and just quenches a thirsty ground, we're praying that the fallow ground in our culture and community is quenched and it becomes fertile soil for the gospel. We're praying that the churches are quenched and they're renewed and they're refreshed. We're praying that pastors are refreshed and they're encouraged. And we'll have black pastors standing beside white pastors, standing beside Latino pastors, praying for healing in our churches and cities and nation. And we'll have some amazing bands there. Uh, Dub Award artist Todd Agnew will be there. Uh, A band from Austin Shadow Pills. Robert Borelli, who was in the Gambino crime family, will just share how Jesus can change a heart. And we'll share the gospel of Jesus Christ And not only us, but other churches have been fasting and praying along with us. And we are all working to, I mean, bring 20 people on our arm who are in addiction, who are far from God, who are cynical about God, who no longer love God, who don't have a relationship with God. And then we're going to invite them to respond to Christ. And we're going to invite all the Christians everywhere to return to their first love and fully repent and fully surrender their hearts to Christ. And the atmosphere is going to be thick with the presence of the Holy Spirit and it's going to be anointed. And so I ask that you continue to repent and continue to fast and continue to pray and reach out to as many people as you can and invite them along. Uh, There's some practical tools on Facebook, the Facebook event invite, you know, just click invite and then choose friends and then click all your friends and send and that's one way to do it um all do that but that's a small way but but it can help in a big way but then something else that you can do man just scroll through text as many people don't miss this if you've ever done anything for me as a friend be here this night i want you there because i think it's going to change your life text them text them 10 times this week call them, say, can I come get you? I mean, have 20 people there. And then we're expecting many people to come to Christ. And they'll all just be encouraged to go to church that Sunday with whoever invited them. And um, we're swinging for the fence. And we're praying that it's not just an event. We're praying that it's, it's a movement. And we're praying that it creates a a surge of spiritual momentum in the life of the churches, in the life of the pastors. Um, We're praying that that many people's eternal addresses are rewritten and all of heaven will erupt in joyful celebration. And we're praying also that it creates a a ripple of, of, of healing across our city. And we're praying that God would even spread that ripple further across our nation. We're praying for a revival. It's a supernatural phenomenon. I mean, you can do what you can do, but then God's got to do what only God can do. You know, it's, we look to the Lord and say, all eyes are on you, Lord. Do what only you can do. Um... Now, we've literally done what we can do, and there's still some more things, humanly speaking, that we can do in his power. But it's up to God. You know, and we just take our hands off and swing for the fence. So please be praying for awakening. We, we were going into it praying maybe 20, 25 churches would come on board. That we know, there could be more, but that we know 13 churches, uh, maybe 14 and uh, maybe more will be coming on board. 
There's just power in unity. I know that. You know, we, we, we get, we're so busy with what we have going in our own four walls, you know? And, and so God really delights in unity. There's power in unity, and there's power in prayers, and there's power in repentance, and there's power in joyful expectation for God to do what only God can do. Um, there's a story of, 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 a, of, a, of a rural community that was in desperate need of rain for their livelihood. And so, I mean, all the churches were going to assemble in the town square and pray for rain. Um, and, and it was an interdenominational effort. I mean, Catholic churches, Baptist churches, Pentecostal churches were all showing up. You know, the Baptists, they, they showed up with their emblems of faith. They had the word. And the Pentecostals showed up with their emblems of faith. They had their tambourines and they were worshiping. The, the Catholics showed up with their emblems of faith and they had their, their rosary beads. And they prayed and prayed and prayed and the sky was just scorching hot. I mean, the sun just sunburned them all. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and they all went home discouraged. Well, the next day, this little girl shows up to pray because she got the day wrong. She thought it was supposed to be the previous day or the, the next day. She, she, she got her dates wrong. But she walked up and uh, with her emblem of faith, and she began praying. And the skies grew black, and the winds rolled in, and the skies flashed with lightning, and rain began to pour. And then she held up her emblem of faith. And that was an umbrella. <laughs> she expected her prayers to be answered. And God delights in prayers of expectation. And so let's expect God to do what only God can do. Bring about repentance in the hearts of people. Bring about unity in church. Cause refreshing in churches. Cause this hard ground, uh, this hard ground uh, to be broken up so that it, receives the gospel of Jesus Christ and pray for many people to come to Christ, to pray for healing in our city and healing to move through our nation. So, um, just as a church family, I, and, and if you're a guest, I, we invite you. I would just like to close our service out. If you would just come up here and, and let's just all come forward in unity and, and gather hands and we'll pray. mentioned Olympic athletes. There's one characteristic you do not see in Olympic athletes. People who are trained. And you guys, y'all come on in here kind of close. It's good you are holding hands. Y'all just, let's just bring it in tight. Y'all move on in. There's one characteristic, one characteristic that you guys do not see in Olympic athletes. One characteristic. The guy, the heavyweight fighter who's going to win the, the championship that guy, not the guy who's going to lose it because he's out of shape, but the guy's going to win it. Same characteristic in him as in the Olympic athletes. It's a, it's a, it, I mean, the same characteristic that, that's not present. You, you don't see it in them. It's timidity. You don't see a spirit of timidity in any Olympic athlete who wins a medal. You don't see a spirit of timidity in any fighter who wins a championship. You don't. And the Bible tells us that we have not been given a spirit of fear and timidity, but we've been given a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And so let's pray that we would be bold in our faith for Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for everybody here. And we just pray in Jesus' name, God, that there would not be a spirit of fear and timidity present in any of our faith. And that's something that in the flesh I wrestle with, but I surrender it to you. And Lord, we all surrender fear and timidity to you. And we pray that you would fill us with a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind to champion your glory, the name of Christ, unity, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jesus' name. And Lord, as everybody's up here, Lord, I, I don't know what sins resonated with, 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 with each individual here, Lord, but we pray that we would cast them down. Lord, we cast them down right now. We cast them down, Lord. Whatever sins resonated and clicked, uh, just, I encourage you right now, just cast it down. Uh, let it have no part of your life. Let it have no part of your heart and mind. Repent of it right now. Turn it over to Jesus. Say, Lord, I surrender that to you. It is not mine. It is not part of your character. It's not part of your compassion. I've turned from that sin, and I cast it down. And now, after we cast down sin, now pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And just pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit overflowing. So that like Daniel, when people looked at Daniel, whether he was a young man or whether he was an old man, they saw you, and they saw something true, and they saw something different, and they saw what the world needed more than anything, you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that none of me remains, and it's all you living through me, in Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray for awakening. We pray that you would do what only you could do. Save souls. Unify churches, renew churches, encourage pastors, heal a city and a nation. Bring the church in this city to complete repentance where we love you. We return to our first love again wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.